Hello, my name is Christopher Monroe, and welcome to the Soundtrack to a Life. more to the soundtrack to a life. I am still Chris. With me is still Mike. Hello again. And Mike and I today are talking about Amon Tobin's 1998 album, Permutation. Uh, Mike, tell me about this piece of music. What's your relationship with it? What's my relationship with it? Well, we've got to go back in time a little ways to the heady days of early 2002. I'm working my first actual job, first thing that I actually consider as a real job. I was working as a cell phone programmer for TELUS. Now, this was being done in a warehouse, and, you know, it gets pretty quiet in there later on in the day, so one of my friends had recommended this new thing that he'd found on the internet, which was called LaunchCast. Now, this was, like, the early, early days of streaming radio. I think it was done by Yahoo. Somehow they managed to do it without any ads. I don't know how they were paying for rights or anything like that. But anyway, so I brought in a set of speakers and plugged them into the work computer. And one afternoon when I was in the uh, shop area on my own, I came across this track, Sorted, and it was unlike anything I had ever heard. And I was like, I think I can recognize that little bit of it from somewhere. And oh, there's a little bit there. I was suddenly introduced to, like, the full world of sampling. And I decided right then and there I had to go and download off of Napster this album. And it only took me three and a half weeks because, of course, tracks only came in about once every eight days sort of thing. And I was going to buy myself a Zune and be able to take all of this music with me. And looking back at it, I can see just how naive I was. You know, not having heard real sampling before or anything like that. But Amon Tobin really changed my perspective on music uh, just in terms of what it could be. He takes everything from his own vinyl collection, puts it into a computer, fucks with it to no end, and then creates this totally new piece of music, and I just really fell in love with the jazziness, the drums, all of it. So, that's my story. What's yours? Well, my story is, downloading a record off of Napster so as to put it on your Zune might be peak 2003. <laughs> just about, <laughs> just right? Just starters. Yep. We've received maximum 2003 now. <laughs> and well done us. As far as the record goes... Thank you for letting me know that it's all samples, because I spent a good portion of my first listen trying to figure out if this was a producer and remixer who used a lot of jazz samples, or if this was a jazz quartet that had been heavily remixed. And I really felt like it could go either way. I felt like it could go either way, both by what it sounded like, and also just because your tastes in music are eclectic enough that you could hand me a remix album for a jazz group that everyone but me knows about. Yeah, that's certainly that's part of my MO, yeah. I'm loving it. It's fantastic fun. The opening track, I was very surprised by. I don't know what I expected, 
but it had almost like a trip hop feel. It was jazz influenced with breakbeats, and then they maintained that kind of weird, skippy, breakbeaty, slowed downy tone throughout. It actually does surprise me given what I was listening to in 1998. 1998 was a great year to get into electronic music because rock guitar music and indie guitar music had all just sort of disappeared at that point, hadn't it? Yeah, the sort of indie music that I liked, all of the class of 95 Britpop bands were either petering out or had flamed out. Mm -hmm. And all of the early 2000s, like Strokes, Yeah Yeah Yeahs, or even the mellower Keen, Coldplay, Travis types had not broken really big yet. And commercial rap all sounded like P. Diddy, which a lot of people are into, but I was not. So I had a real gap in what I was listening to. <laughs> and I was at an age where I needed to be listening to contemporary music. Mm -hmm. So this is where I got into uh, your Prodigies or your Chemical Brothers or your Fatboy Slims or your Trickies. Crystal Method. Crystal Method, Portishead, mm -hmm. Aphex Twin. And this record very much sounds like if Aphex Twin and Portishead had had a baby. Yeah. Yeah, I could see that. And then fed that baby... Uh, tone of club drugs. Yep. Yep, there's there's a fair amount of ecstasy in there, I'm betting. Please don't feed your baby club drugs. <laughs> Listeners it's at home? probably ill-advised. I don't know. They're, they're starting to find that, uh, like, super low dose, like, micro dose of ecstasy probably helps with depression. So, maybe? Here's the thing. <laughs> Every time somebody says hallucinogens are good for you medically, it turns out to be somebody who's on a ton of hallucinogens. And wants an excuse. We well, did this in the 60s with LSD. This is true. Yeah. All of those guys turned out to have not been real doctors. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they were like Trump's doctor, right? Yeah, uh, yeah, There yeah. you go. Yeah. Gotcha. So I'm going to give it a few years. I'm the same way with vaping. It's the it's the safer, healthier version. Is it, though? Because, like, See, I've got cigarette a companies said that cigarettes were safer and healthier right up until they no longer could as well. I, and I have to question, like... All of a sudden, vaping became a thing, and it's like, how many, had, had there been even six months worth of testing as to what the exposure to these vaping chemicals is doing to you? What's it doing to you long term? Yeah. I, mean, I got questions. Anyways. Now, that's don't get me wrong. If vaping helps you quit smoking, by all means, it's definitely not worse than taking carcinogens, setting them on fire, and putting them in your body. I'm just saying new people should not start. Uh, what I'm saying is, if you need nicotine, go to the fucking source. That's all I'm saying. All right. That's, okay. that's, I, I, I'm a, anyways. Uh, <laughs> anyway, please don't give your baby drugs. And also, specifically, the liveish songs mm. on this record sound like Portishead, and the electronic ones sound like Aphex Twin. And then it feels like Amon Tobin is setting those two things as the ends of a spectrum. And then moving very fluidly throughout that spectrum in a way that never seems forced or Frankensteined together in a way that I really appreciate. I remember when I first heard this entire album. Even to this day, I question how the hell with just samples you can get some of these drum lines that sound exactly as though they could be live. Like yeah. just like a wicked prodigal level jazz drummer just going and yet according to everything i've ever read about this album it's 
all samples. It's all based off of he was living in Brazil at the time, and this is all samples from his jazz vinyl that he inputted into a computer, used, I think he used Cubase or something to that effect, to just fuck with these samples to no end. Like, made them almost entirely unrecognizable, and then this is what came from it. I mean, you'll hear, like, string lines in it, where it's like, I'm certain I've heard that somewhere, and almost certainly you haven't. It's something new and totally of itself. It's... I really love it. And it's a good marriage of forms. Jazz and electronic music are structurally very similar to me. They're both wildly expressive. They both can involve vocals, but do not have to. They are both frequently the product of a single, unified, creative vision. They're both genres that music obsessives can dig way too deep into and never quite find the bottom. It's interesting to see them presented directly to each other here because that happens more rarely than it perhaps ought. Yeah. Further on in his career, uh, I believe the follow-up album to this one, it was voted, like, best jazz something. Best jazz something album for the year. Mm-hmm. And, uh, well, I don't know what they specifically called it. It was uh, people like Quincy Jones and Miles Davis talking about how it's maybe one of the most inventive albums of the decade. And it's like, when people like that are saying shit like that, it's yeah. clearly got something to it. And it is. Like, this sounds... Like, you hear the influences, but this sounds... Utterly unique. I haven't come world. across anything like it, yeah. honestly. And this album, uh, as well as a couple of the other of his, are basically I'll I'll go for like weeks on end listening to one album of his and just keep listening and listening and listening. And eventually, it's like okay, I've got to move on to something else. But he's one of those few artists where I can sit on it and just listen to each layer further and further, and there's just so much detail to it. Yeah, sampling is a fascinating art form. Mm-hmm. It gets into some really interesting questions. I mean, there's sampling, as you hear in popular music, where it's like, is that its own thing? Like, where people are using, like, basically direct lifts of lines from previous songs, but then selling it as their own as... I question whether that can be considered a unique entity. Sure, but at the same time, like listen to Paul's Boutique and how layered the samples are. It's very true. On yeah. something like that. The fact that some people do it clumsily is not the fault of the art form. This is true. And the fact that I can't draw hands worth shit <laughs> doesn't mean that does not you mean don't drawing try to, is yeah. bullshit. <laughs> the fault is no entirely my own. Yeah, I don't. I, the sampling on this has probably spoiled me in terms of samples anywhere else. Mm. Um, it puts it at such a high level that that's what I expect from sampling everywhere. Yeah, uh, and it's rare if ever you come across it. Well. That's the difference between an art form as its own thing and as a flavor among many that you can add to the music, right? Because a song that is not about showcasing the producer's adeptness and musical ear Mm. as a producer is just going to throw it into a more conventional pop song 
and understandably so. It's not going to be as attention-grabbing, because it's not the part of the song that is expected to grab your attention. You want to listen to, I don't know, Post Malone's voice when you listen to a Post Malone song that has a sample in it. But I'd say that the sample is trying to evoke a feeling from said prior song that it was sampled from. So that gets into should an artist be using someone else's impression to be able to make their own impression? Well, it depends on what you do with it, right? If you're using it for a unique uh, creative expression of your own, then the postmodernist in me is going to fall back on there are no new ideas. Recontextualize something in an interesting way for a contemporary audience. See, The dude who wrote the song, arguably rightly, would like to get paid if you use his song. I, I would so maybe pay, agree with definitely that. pay that person. Yeah. But as to whether it's a unique art form in its own, I'd say yeah. Yeah, see, and the, I think that's one of the things that I can appreciate with how far the samples on this album have gone, is there's no mistaking it as what it was. Very little of the stuff that you hear in here. Like, the few vocal parts that you hear in here are all clips from movies, which I'm sure he would have had to pay rights for or something, get permissions, etc., etc. Or lean real heavily on the fair use laws. Yeah. What uh, are the fair use laws in Brazil? <laughs> I don't know. Uh, I think it'd be hilarious if it turns out Brazil has just the most liberal fair use laws. I'm and pretty, that's why he camped there to record this. I'm pretty sure the most recent edition of the copyright laws were codified in Brazil. I'm trying to remember, you know, random Wikipedia articles. It's like Brazil 1930-something, <laughs> and they codified new copyright criteria. I think that... It, uh, I could be just talking on my ass. You can research it yourselves yep. if you're listening. I mean, copyright laws only even get more stringent as Mickey Mouse edges closer to the public domain. Yeah, oh, what... Four or five years from now? I mean, no, because they're going to change the law. Well, they'll change the it law, obviously. supposed to have, like, a decade ago? And then they changed it, and, yeah, they'll just, they'll just keep pushing it back. But yeah, I mean, one of the things that I like about this album is just how atmospheric it is. Yeah. It's just, like, I'm shocked he has not been tagged to score a movie. Yeah, I have, um, I have here, if Danny Elfman were, God forbid, to ever pass. This music would go really well in a Tim Burton film. Yeah, I'd say so. He did score one thing. He scored, interestingly, one of the Tom Clancy Splinter Cell games. He actually did the score for it, and you can buy the soundtrack album. So basically what they did was they had him write a song with four different portions to it. So depending on what was happening for a character in the game, in the level... It would move to different portions of it and be able to move essentially seamlessly from one to the next. Yeah, yeah. You could skip portions two and three and go direct from one to four or whatever. And it's really interesting to listen to. It's hard to call it an album per se. I guess, officially speaking, yes, because it was released as one. It is there by an album, but it's a really interesting look at sampling used from that perspective. And incidental music in movies and games is always a tricky proposition because you want to be doing your best work, but also not draw focus from the movie or game. Yeah. You know, you've got your John Williams, which is part and parcel to Star Wars. You can't have Star Wars without the John Williams, but then you've got incidental music where 
yeah, you, you just need sound there, but you don't want it to draw away from anything that's going on. Yeah. Otherwise, um, everyone will make fun of your movie for the fact that every time anything happens, there is... <laughs> I don't know which one you could possibly be talking about. <laughs> um, but, I mean, can you remember any of the music that you might have heard in, let's say, Avengers Infinity War? Like, there there are a few of the themes in there, certainly for each one of the yeah. 70 million fucking characters in that film. But... For the most part, when anything's happening, it's like, yeah, there there is music there, but you don't recognize, you don't even notice that it's really there. It's just addition. A greater Marvel obsessive than me would probably be able to answer that question in a more satisfying way, though. Probably, yeah. Like, I'm definitely a fan of those films. Yeah, they're okay. But, like, I'm a B-B fan. I go see them, mostly, and then I'll marathon all of the ones that I haven't seen right before the Avengers ones come yeah, for me, like they're they're good popcorn flicks, but that's about as much effort as I'm putting into them. Stuff explodes real good. Stuff explodes, yeah. And every like fifth one, there's something is a legitimately great good movie film, yeah. that I am glad to have watched. And the rest is kind of just homework, but still fun. So I'm still willing to do it. Yeah, I mean, this album. One of the things that in the past semester I've gotten really into and will probably end up being part of my master's program has become the ontology of music. So more about like, okay, sampling, stuff like that. Yeah. The question is, what is a song? Partially due to this podcast, I've also started going, okay, what is an album? Good example is like, how many fucking iterations of the Beatles' White Album do we need? That's a blanket question. We as a culture, or you and I specifically? Uh, because it could be, uh, well, uh, being philosophical, it should of, deal with universals. Because the number of copies of the White Album that you and I need is the number that you need plus zero. True. Okay. <laughs> uh, but, so the, I mean, they've done so many re-releases of it. So many repressings, so yep. many remixes, or well, remasters yep. of it. The question then becomes, which one is the White Album? The one that Danger Mouse did, where he remixed it with Jay-Z's The Black Album. <laughs> I didn't even know that was a fucking thing. It's Beatles songs with Jay-Z rapping over top. Oh my god. As remixed by Danger Mouse. Oh my fucking god. Oh, you learn something new every day. Anyways, find it uh, somewhere. It's not available legally. Yeah, so I'm, I'm sure it's not. Don't find an illegal download, kids. That would be, would wrong. be wrong. It said the guy who was talking about downloading albums off of fucking Napster. Yeah, but that was just 2003, man. Yeah, it was before. It was still the wild west. Well, we all I guess got, it's still the wild west. Let's face we it. We all got shocked back into it. When one of the bands that we loved broke up specifically because of poor album sales and we realized that we had downloaded their last record on Napster and then felt shitty and then started paying for music again. I think the we all part of that statement may be a little strong. Dick! <laughs> pay money for music! <laughs> I, ha I, have, I, ha I have been in, like, say, the past ten years, but it was about five years after Napster before I actually started. Like, it was, it was well into, like, torrent time by that point, before I, A, had the means, and B, was conscious enough to actually purchase music. But yeah, no, I do now. But yeah, they're going to never stop releasing the White Album. See, and here's why. 
Because it will always sell. It will always sell. Cher is coming to town. I had heard this, yeah. And I thought that Cher would be a fun show. And the opening act is Nile Rogers, formerly of the 70s disco band Chic, and the producer of almost everything. Okay. Um, he produced Let's Dance for David Bowie. He produced Notorious for Duran Duran. He produced a bunch of Madonna tracks. He produced We Are Family. Wow. More recently, he produced Get Lucky with Daft Punk. That's him playing the guitar. Holy shit. Basically, every song where the guitar sounds like that is the same guy making up-tempo dance music where the guitar sounds like that because that's the kind of music that he loves. Okay. And he's never going to stop. And we caught him opening for Duran Duran, and he's just a ton of fun live. And Cher is a legend, obviously. So I thought, let's go see Cher. Why the hell not? Get on Ticketmaster, look up tickets. Oh, my God. Baby boomers will pay anything. Have so much money. Yes, that is absolutely true. Like, we talk about how baby boomers destroyed the economy to their own benefit in a context of being angry that the economy is destroyed, and we have to live in it a lot. What we don't talk about enough, I think, is the to their own benefit part, because they can afford... $300 share tickets in bad seats and a new copy of the White Album every other month like it's nothing. Yeah. I saw a really interesting video on YouTube, a vinyl reviewer, when the 50th anniversary release of the White Album came out. He bought that one, but he did this neat thing in terms of he had three other versions of it. He'd play a track and he'd go from like the 1968 original to like, uh, he didn't know specifically what mix it was. It was a pressing from like 1980 in the UK. And then he had, just for sake of comparison, a mono uh, release of it from late 2010s, something like that. And so he'd cut from, from one to the next to the next, just in sync with the entire thing. So that you could hear the distinct differences between each mix. And you hear the 68, you hear the 80, you hear the mono, you hear the the brand new one, the 2018. And it's got a lot of a low end, it's rich, it's warm, it's all of that. And someone, say, who is 17 and enjoys the Beatles, such as Liv, says, no, 2018 is the version. To which I go, no. 1968 is the White Album. Eventually, Apple's going to need to employ people to deal with this problem because people are going to want to find the definitive one. Which one is the definitive one? To my tastes and to my philosophical thought, the one that was originally set out by George Martin and the Four Beatles, that is the one that is the White Album. This one was remastered by someone. It might have been George Martin's son, maybe? But I have questions as to whether that is the right album. Yeah. But, I mean, there's also a matter of, in this particular case especially, the band was a group that was obsessed with technology in their lifetimes. If they had access to the recording technology of today, there is no arguing they would have availed themselves of it. But... Also, also, with regard to this band in particular, the Beatles wrote like 10 songs and the rest of it's basically children's music, so who cares? (laughs) (laughs) Beatles fans, at me. Your favorite band is trash. Yeah. (laughs) 
I, 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 I can't argue that point. There is a lot of children's music in there. It's remarkably catchy children's music. It's well done children's music, but I'm sure it's probably rev- overpriced. I'm sure it sounded revolutionary at the time. Mm-hmm. I've been listening to bands that have stood on the shoulders of those giants for long enough that the original giants look smaller than they would have. This record, on the other hand, mm-hmm. doesn't sound like anything, and that's going to benefit it, I think. Absolutely. Uh, I was actually quite surprised when I put forward this one for you that you hadn't heard of him. Not many people have. I brought up the name to basically everyone I know, and yeah, it's basically blank stares. It's different. It's such a worthwhile album. It it'll really give you an appreciation for some out there jazz. Yeah, for some just phenomenal, phenomenal drumming, phenomenal breakbeat. Just oh, and you just can't help but get into it. Yeah, and being this unique is great for the longevity of a piece of music because there will never be a piece of music that is like this only better because there will never be a piece of music that is like this. Even Eamon Tobin himself at this point is doing quite different stuff. A few albums after this, he all of this stuff is samples from vinyl, all of this. And he eventually got to the point where he started going out and getting his own samples, like going out into nature and getting sounds or getting like the sound of a motorcycle starting up or whatever and built two albums around that. That's interesting. Uh, where he took non-musical sounds and made them music. And it's very interesting. I wouldn't say it's as fluid as this. There's an extent of music that is inherent in this stuff, whereas that, it's... Ambient. Ambient, and you can hear that it has been fucked with and all of this and made into what he wants it to be, but there's just... There's a lack of cohesion to it somehow. It lacks the underlying musicality of starting with actual music. Yeah. I do appreciate the use of loops and repetition to drive in single lines on a lot of the songs, is almost hypnotic. Yeah, absolutely. As you listen to it, it's interesting. It holds your attention really expertly as the same line with minute changes. I think it's... Uh, repeats and repeats. The um, I think it's people like Frank. They're, the bass line is just entirely... Like, it doesn't change through the entire thing. Yeah, yeah. And it's just so hypnotic. Yeah. It's like... And it's like a dirt easy bass line, but it draws you in and then you start to hear this layer over on the left or, you know, this layer here. And it's just, it layers and layers and layers until you kind of lose the bass line, but it's still... Yeah, it's, it's just part it's, of you it's, now. It, it's, it's, yeah, it's just in the back of your head and it will just yeah, always be there. It lives in your life. Um, the Fall did something similar with their music. Which is funny, because in every other way, Amon Tobin and The Fall could not be more dissimilar. I don't know if you're familiar with those guys. They do heavily distorted post-punk records. Okay, could be fun. But they do a similar thing with repetition throughout them. And it has a similar effect. But yeah, it causes it to stick with you long after the song has ended. Which is interesting on a record, because after the song has ended... You're into the next song. You're into the next (laughs) song, but you're still carrying... 
the previous song with you to a degree. And now that is kind of involuntarily in the mix as you listen further to the record. You know, normally I'd say if a song bleeds into the next one, that's maybe not a great identifier. Here, it really works because, as you say, it sticks with you. And at least in the way that the album is ordered, you can tell he was thinking about that. You can tell that, okay, he wants that, you know, super repetitive bass line to still be ringing in your head as you start into this one and then just gradually twists it. And it works really nicely. Yeah, it's a really interesting approach to making music that would not work for most artists, but works spectacularly well here. This is music that has a real sense of menace to mm -hmm. it. Like there's something... Ominous. Yeah, there's something ominous, there's something sinister in the choice of keys that puts you just slightly off kilter while you're listening. That's my MO. I love stuff that just puts a bit of a Dutch tilt on it. Sort yeah, of thing. yeah. It's like it just slightly sideways, you're not quite getting square doorways sort of thing. Yeah, and with music this smart, it's the same deal as carrying the song into the next song. You have to assume that that is a conscious decision that he made. I'm going to make you slightly uncomfortable because that is the emotional state in which I want you to listen to this music. I'm going to release a record that would work really effectively as the soundtrack to a child's nightmare. The track Nightlife, where there's almost a childlikeness to it, and then you get like these really weird harmonic voices at the end and the angelic stuff and it just it raises and raises and raises up the octaves until it's almost ear splitting it's weird and it's like you went from like this nice childish thing to like oh god those are harpies yeah like, oh god why yeah. would you do that so people don't play with discord enough i think it should be done people. more more often my god yeah of course, two years ago, I would have said people don't play in minor keys enough. And now having lived through a year in which every mainstream pop song is in a minor key. Basically, yeah. That's exhausting, it turns out. I don't want that anymore. <laughs> it's time for people in good moods. Oh. <laughs> Sorry, man. Ah. Uh, okay. I'm just a Carly Rae Jepsen in a Post Malone world. Fuck. Oh, that's that's an image and a half. Right? Yeah. Pop music has never really been my big thing. And that's where a lot of the happiness has come from. I guess the last, like, poppy-ish thing that I really listened to would have been something like Cake. And even that was only making it onto pop radio because we had no idea what was supposed to go on pop radio. I mean, it's not to say that I haven't heard pop singles, stuff like that, but I don't listen to pop albums uh, as a general rule. I side more on the darkness side of things, and I know that to have that, you have to have the other side of the spectrum, which, you know, people are free to listen to. They can be wrong, but... You are missing out. I, I, and I say they're missing out on my stuff. I disagree. All right. They definitely have the option of listening to both, as do you. True. <laughs> no, yeah, it's been a weird year for pop. Everything's yeah. been minor key. Everything's been songs about depression. Everything's been trying to fit onto Spotify's chill-out playlist to gain weird. extra listens. Yeah. It, from that. I think that is, like, now a driving force, yeah. is trying to, okay, wh which lists can we get onto on Spotify to get more people to hear 
this. Yes. To get more people to stream this album. It, the entire album may not be this, but we need a track, and the marketing people must just be having a fucking riot. Yeah. It's an interesting format, Spotify, because it is an album's format, whereas iTunes is very much a singles format. Very much so. You just recently made the switch over to Spotify, didn't you? Yeah, 2018 was my first year doing a mix of vinyl and Spotify. Nice. But it also is very much a playlist format, which I think has contributed to the current atmosphere of pop centrism. Everything needs to sound good played between everything else, so nobody wants to stick their neck out too far. Yeah. Any of the uh, like Spotify lists that I do download, it's all older stuff. It's nothing current. It's punk revolutions or shit like that, where it's like late 70s, early 80s punk, basically exclusively. You don't get any of the new stuff that is trying to fit into that, Mm. those lists. But the only time I'm listening to lists that Spotify creates that aren't that are like the Discover Weekly, uh, where it just sort of... It takes what I've listened to and goes, well, you might like this. And I don't know how much marketing is in that. Probably way, way more than we give it credit. See, I've uh, gone the opposite direction in that any record is free and can be turned off after three songs if I don't like it. So if I read an article about somebody and I like the look of them, here's their whole catalog. Well, yeah, uh, that's true. There are very, very few artists that aren't on there somewhere. Yep. I was listening to, from an episode of Coverville, the podcast that plays covers of popular songs, I got linked to a record by a woman, Angelique Kidjo, doing an Afrobeat cover. She's from, I want to say, Kenya, but I don't know that for certain. But it's interesting, she's doing an Afrobeat cover of the album Remain in Light by Talking Heads, which is fun because Talking Heads is very much not Afrobeat. Remain in Light kind of was. Yeah. Okay, it was like yeah. halfway between New York art punk and Afrobeat. Mm-hmm. And we know what that sounds like with the Afrobeat stripped out. Okay. It's an Talking Heads record previous to 1980. Yeah. So it's interesting to hear the same record with the New York art punk Take stripped that. out. And I got into it because it's a Spotify and I can just because link myself not? to exactly, it. Exactly, yeah. And then listen to it and then download the rest of her catalog. And I guess I just like Afrobeat now. Cause, <laughs> so that's a thing. She's real good. Yeah, she's the thing I'm obsessed with right now. Hmm. And that process would not have been possible. No, no, no. And I mean, paying ten bucks a record on iTunes or sixteen on CD. And you know, like I said, right at the big, you know, <laughs> right at the beginning, I said Launchcast. You know, it, this no one knew what the hell streaming radio was, streaming music, anything like this. This is 2002. It was brand new to think that it has come as far as it has. Yeah. You know, at the beginning, I'm certain artists weren't being paid for any of that stuff. Oh, guaranteed. Now, at least they're getting paid if, if a pittance, but, yeah. uh, it's getting so much more music out there to so many more people. So my hope is many that many of whom aren't availing themselves of it. A lot of people are sticking to the chill-out tracks and listening to the new exhaustingly long Drake record. Yeah, no, thank you. Dude, Drake is good. But that record was too long. <laughs> <laughs> I can right. carry both of these thoughts in my head simultaneously. Okay. Sure. There's no dissonance there. I like Drake in general. I would love for somebody to put that record out as a tight 45. And it's a, it's a format in which you can discover 
new, weird music that you'd never have been exposed to. But like lyrics in an electronic or jazz record, you don't have to. Yeah. I mean, it's all up to you. My hope is that the streaming era has done well for an artist like Montomit. He's so, so talented in his mixing, so talented in the sampling. I hope that it doesn't just stay an unknown thing. I mean, it will. It will. Regret it. I mean, it's, it's 20 years after this record came out. Well, admit The time where yeah. it was going to break big and mainstream has well and truly passed. Uh, the cultural moment for something that sounded like this was, ironically, 1998. He just, for whatever reason, didn't hit. Didn't get in the door with the popular artists yeah. doing work in the same vein, which is a risk that you run when you do the more cerebral version of a style of music. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, this is this is the Chemical Brothers on, like, the biggest upper brain upper you could find. Yeah, whereas the Chemical Brothers or Prodigy or Fatboy Slim Lowest sounded, common denominator. sounds great on the radio, though. Yeah, like, yeah exactly. You want to get some 30- or 40-year-old white dudes turned up? <laughs> Put on a Prodigy record. Watch them lose their GD mind. Have you heard their new one? I have. What do you think? I mean, total sidebar here, but... Not that much of a sidebar. Not that much. I mean, As uh, many of you at home know, if you listened to my Best of 2018... I haven't downloaded it yet. So it hasn't yeah. come out yet as we're recording. Ah. <laughs> I'm acting like we're keeping current with this okay, rather than cool. doing the same <laughs> Although I'll be keeping all of this in, obviously. Yes. Uh, I liked it a lot. I thought it was one of I was very impressed with it. Best records yeah. of the year. I loved it. It's really broy and fratty, and I get how people might not like it, but it's pitched directly at me, and being pandered to is fun sometimes. Mm -hmm. And this uh, was too smart for the radio. Yeah. So it, he didn't it was, get caught up on that wave, unfortunately, it because was, he deserved to be. It was too smart even for me when I first heard it. I like to think that I'm musically fairly intelligent. Uh, you know, I've had the music education, I've had all this sort of thing. I've been given the ability to appreciate this, and it just about went over my head. It could have just as easily just flown right over my head, and I would never have thought about it again. Well, I'm glad that it didn't. Yeah, because so am I. Otherwise, you'd have so. never brought it for me. But we're getting to the end. All right. It is getting to be that time. I'm going to end the episode, as I always do, by answering three questions. All right. This is not the sort of music that I'm going to listen to every day. Uh, it requires a very specific mood, but it nails that mood, and I have no doubt that I will be listening to this person again going forward. As far as exploring the rest of his catalog, he does a lot of work with ambient noise rather than jazz records post this. Is that um, how that works out? So Super Modified is spectacular. It, I, I think it's his like biggest commercial success overall, which is still not saying a lot. A really, really great album. Some incredible breakbeats on that. You can check out Out From Out Where, which is the last of his sample, like vinyl sample records. Foley Room is the first fully. It, I mean, it's named after you know the Foley Room in. It used for film. Yeah. Uh, so he's creating all the samples himself. And it's very different, still very good, but so it'll depend on your flavor. Nice. All right. Well, I'm probably going to dig into that eventually. Excellent. 
Uh, and as far as songs to lead us out, I'm going to play Nightlife. This has been the Soundtrack to a Life. I have been Chris. Mike has been with me. Follow us along at SoundtrackCast on Facebook and Twitter. SoundtrackCast.com. Like us, share us, rate us, review us. It is helpful when you do those things. It is not harmful when you don't do those things, but not helpful either. And wouldn't you rather be a helpful person? We'll be back in another couple of weeks with a different guest and a different record to talk about. See you then.